Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 11, verse 26. This morning, we're going to begin our series on uh, heroes of the faith. We're going to start with Abraham, who is uh, the father of faith. If you look at him throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, he is seen as the prototype. He's the paradigm. If you want to know what it means to be a believer, to be one who trusts, you look at Abraham. But uh, Abraham is a great place to start as well because he is an unlikely hero. He didn't start as a hero. Uh, he had to grow into this role. He didn't start great at all. In fact, as we're going to see in a few moments, uh, Abraham started very far from God. And as we look at his life, what I want us to do is we're going we're to look at three symbols or metaphors from Abraham's life that kind of trace this development of faith within him. And I want to begin by reading in chapter 11, verse 26. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the records of the generation of Terah. Terah became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. Days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed From Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. The first symbol or metaphor that I want to direct your attention to in Abram's life is a tent. God called, and Abraham packed. God called, and Abraham pulled up his tent, packed up his belongings, and he left. He followed God's lead. Now, what was it that Abraham was leaving behind? Uh, I'll give you a quick geography lesson here. Can you pull down the lights for me a little bit so we can see that map a bit? Okay. Uh, If you look down in the uh, lower right-hand corner, uh, I'll get a bigger map next time. Sorry. Uh, It says Ur. That's Ur of the Chaldeans. It's on the Euphrates River. If you were to trace this map a little bit further down to the right, so south and east, you'd come to the Persian Gulf. Uh, Ur was a city that was, it was a major metropolitan area of the day. Uh, As a matter of fact, when Abraham arrived there in Ur, the city had probably been in existence for over 3,000 years. It was occupied for about 5,000 years. It was a center of commerce. There on the river, there was transport into the Persian Gulf. It also provided a a land route that went from India all the way into the rest of Asia and North Africa and then into Europe. It was one of the crossroads. So it was a a center of commerce. It was a center of of culture, of art and literature, uh, of language. It was was a, a mecca of the day. 
This is one of the the centers of civilization, and Abraham's right in the middle of it. It's also a very fertile valley. So Abram, as a shepherd, had moved himself into, or his family had moved into an area where he could make a great living. All kinds of people coming through constantly, buying and selling uh, fertile ground for him to raise his sheep. Uh, Abraham was leaving behind wealth. He was leaving behind uh, culture, civilization. He was leaving behind family and friends. Everything in his life centered right here. Abraham was also leaving behind a very pagan culture, a a worldview that was entirely set against God. I want you to turn with me to the book of Joshua, chapter 24, and verse 2. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely, Terah, the father of Abraham, father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Look down at verse 14. It says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. What were the gods that his fathers had served? Well, they had served uh, the moon god, Sin was his name. Ironically, that's not English, but you know, it is kind of interesting, isn't it? That's the name of the moon god, and they worshiped him. Ur of the Chaldeans was a center of worship for this god. And apparently, Terah and his sons and his daughters worshiped this god. If you look at the, the, the names of uh, Abraham's wife and Abraham's sister in law, Sarai, her name is derived from the wife of the moon god. And Milcah, her name is derived from the daughter of the moon god. They were embedded in this culture. And what's interesting is they were not originally from this land. They are a Semitic family. They had originally grown up much further to the west here, okay, closer to the promised land. And if you've ever noticed in the Genesis narrative, when people are moving away from God, which direction do they go? They go to the east, right? They move to the east. When Adam and Eve leave the garden, they move to the east, They're moving away from God. Abraham and his family were Semitic people. They were further from the west, closer to the center of God's will. And the family had moved probably several generations back and they'd moved to the east. And now God is reaching out and he's calling them out of the east. He's calling them away from the land of Shinar, uh, the land of of Babylon, the land uh, where the Tower of Babel was, where there was all kinds of pagan worship, a culture that was thoroughly uh, pagan, and he's calling them out of this land. He's calling them back toward himself. He's calling them back toward the promised land. Abraham, separate yourself. And that's what God does. He separates Abraham. And what does Abraham do? Well, he packs up his tent and he leaves. He listens to the voice of God. Now, why did he go? Well, in a word, faith. If you look at Abraham's life, you look at the testimony of scripture throughout, the the central characteristic is faith. The development of Abraham's faith. This concept is central to our walks with God, right? To relate to God, we think about faith. But what does it mean? It's a word we throw out all the time, and I think periodically we need to remind ourselves, what does it mean to believe? What is faith? Uh, it comes from Hebrew word, aman, from which we get amen. Amen. Truly, ver- verily, uh, it is so. Let me give you a few Old Testament illustrations that I think kind of flesh this out for us. Exodus chapter 17 it says, Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands 
one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sunset. That's the word faith. His hands were steady. His hands were strong because his friends held them up. They were secure. They were reliable. They didn't droop. Second Kings 18, that time Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. That word for doorpost is derived from the word faith. Okay, something strong. It's holding up the door. It's holding up the walls. Okay, something secure, strong, reliable. Exodus 18, you shall select out from among all the people, able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place over these over them as leaders. That word for truth is the word aman. It means True, reliable, consistent with reality. One more illustration from Isaiah 22. I will drive him like a peg in a firm place and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. That word for firm is aman. Okay? The peg is driven deep into a firm place, a strong place, a reliable place, a steady place, a sure place, something that's secure. So when I believe in something... I am trusting that it is secure or reliable. I'm considering it reliable and secure. So in a sense, that aspect of faith doesn't say anything about me, but it says a lot about the object of my faith, that I believe, I trust that it is trustworthy or reliable. Now, if I put my faith in an object that is in fact reliable, God, in that process, God makes me into a reliable person as well, a trustworthy person, a person who is faithful, a person of faith. But initially, I may not be so. What I'm doing is I'm placing my trust as an unreliable person in a reliable God. And so what you see uh, in this concept of faith throughout Old and New Testament is that it's both an event or a point in time, but also a process. Abraham believed And then God began to develop his belief. I want you to turn back with me to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. There was a slave who had been born in his house and since he had no sons, this is the man who would be his heir. He says, God, how are you going to do it? Verse four, then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And God took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then Abraham believed in the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. Apostle Paul in the New Testament will take this passage and he will use it as as the central passage to develop his understanding of justification by faith. This is a moment in time. God has been drawing Abraham to himself. God has been revealing himself to Abraham. But at this point in time, in Genesis chapter 15, God makes a promise to Abraham, and Abraham believes in God. He believes in the revealer, and God says, I credit that trust in me as reliable, as righteousness, or I put you in right relationship with me, not because of anything that you have performed in the past, 
because in fact you were an unworthy vessel. I didn't choose you because you came from the largest family, the best family, because you were so inclined to worship me when in fact you were worshiped other gods. I chose you by my grace and my mercy. And now you have trusted in me, and so I credit that as righteousness. And Abraham was placed into a right relationship with God. Paul tells us that's the gospel. Abraham didn't know everything that we know, but what he did know is that he trusted in this God and believed that he was reliable, that his word was true. Now we have more information. We know that God has fulfilled his promise and sent his son to die for our sins. And when we believe in that, we believe that Christ's death is reliable that it is adequate to remove the debt of our sins. When we believe in that, God removes the debt of our sins and puts us into right relationship with him. That's a gift. It's a gift that's received by faith. It's not a statement about our reliability, but about the reliability of the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And I would exhort you, if you have never ever said, God, I believe that you're reliable. I believe you're true and trustworthy. I believe that Jesus Christ can, in fact, remove the debt of my sins and give me eternal life. If you've never done that, let me encourage you right now, right where you sit, say, just cry out to God. You don't even have to close your eyes. You don't have to bow your head. You just speak in your heart, and God hears because he is everywhere. And he hears the cry of your heart, and he removes that debt of sin and gives you life that lasts forever. That's the gospel. Okay? And Paul builds his whole doctrine from this passage, from Abraham. He's the father of faith for us. Okay? But God doesn't leave Abraham here. Right? He, he brings all kinds of things into Abraham's life to grow and stretch this initial faith so that Abraham will not hold anything back. And the reason that I like to start with Abraham in a series like this is because I can relate to him. His, his pathway was not smooth. He didn't believe and then, bam, here we are. You know, maturity, instant. <laughs> you know, faithful, trustworthy Abraham. It didn't happen like that. As a matter of fact, most of the trials that came in Abraham's life, he failed. There's a really, really rocky path, but God never gave up on him because God is reliable and God wanted to produce something in Abraham's life that Abraham couldn't produce on his own. If we remember one principle from our discussion this morning, it is this partial obedience always slowed Abraham's progress. And this really was the primary pattern of Abraham's life. He, He just gave part. He did give part though. He did take steps of faith. But he often held back a bit, or he tried to figure out his own way. If you've read the book of Acts recently, you may have noticed something very interesting. Stephen is giving his sermon in Acts chapter 7, and we discover that actually God first appeared to Abraham when he was in Ur. And he said, Abraham, leave your family. Okay, leave everything behind. Leave your family. What does Abraham do? Well, he leaves But he takes his family with him. He takes his father and he takes his nephew. And so they journey up from Ur and they stop in Haran. And according to some estimates, they stop for about 15 years until his father dies. Because God isn't planning on moving his father into the promised land. He's just going to move Abraham. So they wait, they stop, they get stalled. And then God appears to him again in Haran after his father has died. And he says, now, leave your family, pick up your tent, pack up, and follow me. And what does Abraham do? Well, he packs up his tent and he brings Lot. And what happens as a result of bringing Lot? 
conflict. Okay, he creates problems for himself because he only obeys partially. His shepherds and Lot's shepherds get into a fight over grazing area and water and so forth. There's conflict and they have to separate. Lot goes and he takes part of Abraham's inheritance, the best part at that point in time. It was before fire and brimstone came down. It was a lush valley and Lot says, that's the good part. I'll take that part. God takes Abraham up and he says, you can look out over the whole thing. Eventually you're going to get it all. So don't worry about it. But then Lot, living in Sodom, which is later destroyed, uh, he's, he's, he's taken away. He's captured at one point. And Abraham has to go to war to rescue his nephew. He's got problems. He's got challenges all along because he doesn't fully obey. I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. And read with me again, beginning in verse 10. It says, now there was a famine in the land. Okay, they're in the land of promise. This is, this is a promised land, land that should be flowing with milk and honey, but it's not. It's a famine. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Um, throughout scripture, to go to Egypt is a bad idea. Okay? Um, there are Obviously, a couple times when God sends his people to Egypt, he sends Jacob down there so that he can allow the uh, Amorites opportunity to repent. He separates his people because they become embedded with the people of the land. He wants them to stay distinct. There are times when God tells his people, go to Egypt. He told Joseph to take Mary and Jesus down to Egypt. But by and large, going down to Egypt is a very bad idea. That's moving away from the center of God's will. A great scriptural illustration of this in Isaiah 31 It says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. They are taking matters into their own hands. They're trying to rescue themselves. They're trying to solve their own problems. And that's why people generally in the Bible go down to Egypt. Well, Abraham in this case is no exception. He's not listening to the voice of God and being directed by God to go to Egypt. He's trying to solve his own problem. There's a famine in the land. Well, I'm going to go down to Egypt. And we know that he's just trying to save his own skin by the way that he treats his wife in this particular setting. Look at verse 11. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me and let you live. Now, pause, side note here. You realize, Sarai at this point is probably in her 70s. (laughs) A little marginal note there. Wow, she's a looker, okay? (laughs) She's in her 70s, and he realizes, anywhere I go, people are going to try to kill me and take you because you are so beautiful. Okay, that's just a little bonus there. Verse 13, please say that you are my sister so that it will go well with me and because of you that I may live and not die on account of you. Man, that is saving his own skin. He's not looking out for his wife. He's not at this point even worried about the promise, so to speak. He's putting the promise in jeopardy because he's trying to protect himself. Verse 14, it came about when Abraham came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. They said, Pharaoh, you need this woman as a wife. She is so incredibly beautiful. 
Therefore, he treated Abraham well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Wow, she's amazing. Take all of this. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him, and they took him back. (laughs) This is your place. Get out of here. And notice, somehow, some way, back in the land of famine, God provided for Abram. He didn't starve. He didn't lose his wealth. God provided. He didn't have to go down to Egypt, but he went down to Egypt to save himself. Now, stunningly, he does this again a second time. Hey, look in verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 1. Now, Abram journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he journeyed in Gerar. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Same thing happened. Uh, his household is struck. And God reveals himself and says, you're a dead man. If you touch this woman, I will kill you. Abimelech is is afraid. And he goes to Abram and he says, what have you done? Verse 9. What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what have you encountered that you have done this thing? Abraham said, because I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. And you want to say, but Abraham, you fear God. Cannot God protect you? He says she's my sister because he's afraid for his own life and he's not trusting that God can protect him. And so he figures out another plan. Hey, why don't I say you're my sister again? I know it didn't work the first time. Another side note, we're talking about the faith of Abram, but what about the faith of Sarai? She's following a man who doesn't know where he's going, right? She's following a man who, on multiple occasions, gives her away. She's following a a man, and she herself personally is struggling with uh, infertility, longing to have a baby, Sarai's faith is being stretched and grown in this process. And notice she doesn't always have a smooth path either. If you look back in chapter 16, she's probably in her 80s at this point. She knows the pressure, the promise. Abraham's told her, God's going to give me a son. (laughs) That's a lot of pressure on me, Abraham. And it's not happening, it's not happening, it's not happening. And now she's in her 80s, so she says, I've got a solution Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. Again, don't go down to Egypt, right? So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram, listen to the voice of Sarai. Now hopefully you picked up from the last two sermons. It's a good thing to listen to your wife, generally speaking. But here... Abraham doesn't listen to God. That's the point. He listens to Sarai and he does not seek out God's wisdom. And the result, again, is a disaster for both of them. Hagar does become pregnant. The plan works. Sort of. 
she has a son, Ishmael, and as soon as she has a son, Ishmael, she despises Sarai. And there's conflict in Abraham's home. Oh, man, you just made a mess of your house, Abraham. Because you didn't listen to the voice of the Lord. And you've created conflict within your house that's going to go on forever and ever and ever. It's been in the newspaper the last few weeks. The children of Ishmael and the children of Isaac fighting over the land. A conflict. When Abraham tries to take matters into his own hands, when he obeys just partially and doesn't listen to the voice of the Lord completely, it slows his progress in the faith down. But God does not quit. God does not quit on him. God continues to pursue him. I want you to look with me in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. Keep your place there in Genesis. We'll be back there in just a minute. But look with me in Hebrews 11. Verse 8, Hebrews eleven eight 8, says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful, reliable, secure, who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them, from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, because he has prepared a city for them." What you see about Abraham's life is even though he stumbled and fell, he was always looking ahead. He was always looking for the promise. Even though he didn't, even, he didn't know where he was going, God said, go to this place. You've never seen it before. You don't know what it will be like, but trust me. He went out and he didn't look back. And he didn't look back and he didn't give up, give up. And even when he stumbled and fell, he learned from these lessons. And God stretched him and grew his faith. If you look throughout the Bible, one of the things you'll notice is that many people did turn back. Later in the story, Abraham needs to find a wife for his son Isaac, so he brings his servant in and he says, I need you to find a son for him. Go back to my people and get a bride and bring her here. And the servant says, well, what if the bride won't come? Should I take your son back to your homeland? And Abraham explodes. He says, by no means, you will not take my son back there. God called me out of that place and we will not go back. If the woman won't come, you are released from your obligation, but do not take my son back to that place because this is our home. This is our place. This is where God has called us. But if you look at the lives of other people throughout scripture, you see sometimes people do turn back. Even in this uh, Genesis narrative, God reaches in and he rescues Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah and he says, don't turn back. Don't look back. 
Don't look back to your house. Don't look back to your possession. Don't look back to your friends who are there. Don't look back to that city in which you become comfortable and the culture that you love and the language that you're comfortable with. Don't look back. And Lot brings his family out. And what does his wife do? She looks back. She's turned into a pillar of salt. Don't look back. In the New Testament... There's a man named Demas and he walked with the Apostle Paul and he worked with the Apostle Paul and he he shared his faith and he made disciples of others and he helped plant churches. But at one point, Paul says toward the end of his ministry, Demas having loved this present world, Demas looked back and he's deserted me. Demas looked back. Don't look back. Great illustration of this. 1519. Spanish explorer Hernando Cortez sailed into Mexico. And when he got there and he unloaded his crew onto the land, he sent a few back to burn all their ships. All their ships, burned all of them. And he did that so that they wouldn't commit mutiny against him. They wouldn't kill him. (laughs) And they wouldn't try to go back. And they wouldn't give up because he knew it was going to be hard, but they needed to press on. So he burned all the ships so that they would always be looking forward. And I think periodically we need to remind ourselves, it's time to burn the ships. Okay, we are going to stumble. We are going to fall. We're going to have struggle and hardship. We are going to be tested because God wants to grow our faith. But we need to burn the ships. Okay, the life that the world has to offer in Ur, the culture, the society, the language, the arts, the worldview that is against God is not what God has destined for us. And periodically we need to say it's time just to, to burn the ships. I put a stake in the ground and say, here I stand and this is the direction of my life and I'm moving forward. I may trip and stumble and fall, but this is the where I'm going. For the rest of my life, I'm committed to this pathway. Now, Abraham did that periodically. He would stop and he would remind himself and remind those around him that God was his God. Yahweh was his God. And he was going to worship him and he was going to cling to those promises. That's the second image that I want to draw your attention to. It's the image of an altar. Because if you follow Abraham's travels, every time there was a critical juncture in his life and he would stop, he would build an altar and he would worship. Turn back to the book of Genesis with me again. Chapter 12 and verse 7. 12.7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountains on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. What was he doing? He's calling upon the name of the Lord. This is not a private worship service. He didn't go into a cave and set up a few rocks and quietly, privately worship the Lord. He, when he's calling upon the name of the Lord, let, let me give you a picture of what's happening. He's going out into a field and he's gathering stones. He's building an altar. He's getting the animal that's appropriate for the sacrifice. This is an all-day event. He's calling his family to him. And as he's building and as he's working, he's calling on the name of the Lord. He is proclaiming the name or the character of God. He's preaching. This is, this is a little, he's just setting up a little podium. You know, let's talk about God. While I'm working and laboring and preparing the animal, 
I'm going to proclaim to you who God is. This is his name. This is how he's revealed himself to me. This is what he has done in my life. These are the promises that he has made. Almost certainly his family is there. Probably even from time to time, people who lived around him came. Because the people who surrounded Abraham knew who Abraham's God was. Because Abraham had constantly been giving him credit. Abimelech would later want to make a covenant with Abraham because he could see that God had blessed him because Abraham had given all credit to God for all that he had. When he waged battle to rescue Lot and wealth was offered to him, he said, no, I will not take anything but from the hand of the Lord. He has provided for me. He has promised me blessing and that I would be a blessing. So Abraham is constantly proclaiming God. He's preaching. Okay. That's what he's doing when he sets up the altar. He's proclaiming the name of the Lord. He's also making sacrifice because anytime there is worship, there is cost. He's taking the most costly and precious animal that he has and he's giving his best to the Lord. There's cost involved in his worship. Turn to Genesis chapter 22 and verse 9. Genesis chapter 22 recounts the offering of Isaac, the greatest sacrifice, the the most important altar that Abraham ever built. And this is probably the the, the pinnacle of Abraham's life because he's been tested and he's been tested and he's been tested. And by and large, he's failed each test. And then in chapter 22, verse 1, it says, after these things, God tested Abraham again and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And this test he passes And what you see is God has matured Abraham's faith. Look with me in verse 9. So then they came to the place which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide or Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Yireh. The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Abraham's faith had reached a point in time where he was willing to give all. Previously, he's giving part. He's holding some back. He's obeying partially. Now he's giving absolutely all. This is the son upon whom all the promises rested. In a sense, this was his absolute most precious possession, and he puts it on the altar. Now, as a father of young children, I I can't really even enter into this story. It's... The faith required to do this is unimaginable to me. I mean, I mean seriously, I, I, don't, I don't even kind of want to go there emotionally and get into this story. I can't contemplate walking with my son or my daughter and having them say, we got the wood, daddy. And here's the fire. And I know there'll be rocks and we can build an altar, but what are you going to put on it? God will provide. And walking slowly with him up to the top of that mountain, letting him help you build, 
and put the wood on and saying, stretch out your hands. You're it. Tying your son up, watching him lay there, looking in your eyes. Can you imagine? I don't even want to imagine. I don't want to think about it. And then reaching up with the knife. Abraham's committed. That angel has to reach out and stop the hand. Don't do it. It was a test. Because I've been working with you, Abraham, for decades. And you just wouldn't give me all. But now I know you'll give me all. Your faith has been brought to maturity. You trust me. And there's Abraham worshiping. He says, oh, God has provided a substitute. In the Mount of the Lord, it will be provided. He's got another story to tell at the next altar that he sets up. You will not believe this God that I worship. You need to know he reveals himself. He does not hide himself. He wants to be known. He makes promises. They're not just promises to me, but they're promises to all people. He's the God of all nations. He's not a small God. He's not a regional God who has a little area. He's the God of all nations, all peoples. And he wants to draw all of you to himself. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm worshiping. That's why I'm proclaiming. He's the God who provides all of my needs. He has always protected me. He's always, even when I've been faithless, he's been faithful. He is trustworthy. He is reliable. Put your faith in him. Trust him. Abraham's faith is brought to maturity. Third image is this. It's a promise. God spoke a word and Abraham believed. And God didn't speak the word just once. He kept speaking it over and over again because we need to be reassured, don't we? And so God kept promising. He kept promising, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a son. I'm going to bless you. And through your seed, through this son, I'm going to extend that blessing to all nations, Abraham. The one who blesses you will be blessed. The one who curses you will be cursed. Abraham, trust me, my plan is for everyone. And and you will be involved in this land that you're walking over. I know that you don't own any of it. The only part that you own, you had to purchase for yourself with your own money. But I'm going to give it all to you. And Abraham believed. And Abraham grew in belief. As God revealed more and more and more of himself to him. And as Abraham failed tests and learned and passed tests and learned, he allowed God to stretch him. And grow him. So what's our application? Are you learning from those lessons? God does not want to leave you right where you are. It doesn't matter if you're old or young. As long as you have breath on this earth, you can count on the fact that God will determinedly, doggedly come after your life and stretch you and, and, and mold your faith so that you become reliable like he's reliable, so that you become faithful like he is faithful. And he will not give up on you. And he will not quit. And periodically what you need to do is you need to step back and remind yourself that the ships need to be burned. This world is not our home. This fall we're going to study the book of 1 Peter. And 1 Peter reminds us we're strangers, we're aliens, we're sojourners. Okay, we're walking on this earth and someday we will inherit it, but not yet. This world is not our home. So don't pitch your tent and drive the stake so deeply and lay a really thick foundation because he may say, pack it up, right? 
And it may not be pack it up geographically, it may be a, a, a new place, but it may be a new job, it may be new, new relationships that you enter into. It may be all kinds of things where God says, pull up the stakes quickly, and if you've driven them so deep and you've laid the foundation so thick, it's difficult to hear the voice of the Lord and say, yes, Lord, here I am, and whatever you call me to do, I will do. So as we close, what I'd like for us to do is just take a few moments before the Lord and say, God, again, afresh, I build an altar here to you and I proclaim your name and I leave all behind. This is the direction of my life. Let's take a few moments silently before the Lord and then let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, your people, need to be reminded from time to time that this world is, is not for us. This is not our home with all of its attractions and all of its deceit. That all of our hope rests with you. And Father, we proclaim again as your people that we trust you. We know that you are reliable and we want to proclaim your trustworthiness to all those around us. Father, I pray that you would loosen the pegs of our tent so that we could hear your voice and we could quickly pack and follow. Father, we thank you that you have proved your, your reliability in fulfilling your promise and giving us your son so that we can be reconciled to you forever. We hope in that this morning through Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.